0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions for a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another Out of the Question podcast. I'm Charles Roberts. And I'm Andrea Schwartz. The question we have today is a very interesting one. And that is, is it true that life imitates art? Andrea, what do you think about that question?
1: Well, I actually brought this question to light for something for us to discuss, because recently, as I had been watching modern movies, new releases, I realized how much of modern thinking gets put into the past in terms of... This is a story about something that happened in the 1800s or the 1700s, and we have very, very modern views that totally eliminate ideas of faith, Christianity, and religion. So I got to thinking, you know, a lot of times people will say, no, 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 life doesn't imitate art. Art is a reflection of light. But when you think about it, every artist – has a message, otherwise there would be no reason to promote it. So I actually don't think it's a valid question, because different presuppositions will inform people's answers. Either art is a reflection of God's created order, where his laws apply, both for blessing and for cursing, or it's going to reflect a different world and life view. So really and truly, you have to look at the artist, whether it be a painter or a novelist or a film producer, director, whatever it is, in terms of what message are they trying to get people to imitate.
0: Yeah, This category opens up uh, a vast field of investigation and discussion. It also, as you have clearly indicated, has a lot to do with Let me rephrase that. It has everything to do with the worldview of the artist, of the producer, the director, the musician, the poet, whatever form of art that we're talking about. Now, for my part, I think that at least in my part of the discussion, I want to concentrate rather heavily on the issue of film and television because this is the media by which many, many people are exposed to what would be considered art We read in the Gospels where Jesus told stories, he told parables, and in our culture today, for better or for worse, parabolic stories come to us most often in the form of TV programs, video on YouTube, or or movies. Like you just said, Andrea, anyone producing a film or writing the script for a film or a TV program, they have an agenda, they have a worldview that motivates them, and you had mentioned to me in a previous conversation about, I think it was a movie that you were looking at or had watched or something, and how there had been some sort of reading back into that film or putting into that film a more, I don't know if you used the term politically correct or not, but there was some way that it had been quote-unquote revised or you know, something like that. Do you recall that conversation?
1: Oh, most definitely, and it's not just that movie. Since then, I've watched two other movies, And in each case, they were either depictions of true events or fictionalized stories that had originally been, I guess, novels and then transferred to the screen. Now, one of the hot-button issues today, some people may not know that this is a hot-button issue, has to do with interracial couples. Now, you and I know that we each believe that it's not race that determines entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It's grace. And so stepping aside from whether it's ideal or not, I personally don't want to spend the time today talking about that. What I noticed that in the movies that I watched, interracial couples were written into the script. And in many cases, when this was a depiction of a true story, that was not part of the story. Those were fictionalized characters put into a story that was supposed to be about this person and his engagings. And then there were some remakes of other novels or other movies. And instead of there was a casting decision to have it be an interracial couple. Now, am I offended by that? Absolutely not. But the fact that I see it over and over again and in commercials, there is a propaganda statement that's being made and let's understand what propaganda is. It's the putting forth of somebody's opinion, but not necessarily sharing all other opinions as well, right? Because we talked about propaganda last time. In other words, somebody or some group of somebodies wants everybody to get familiar with what this looks like. And I remember years ago, the introduction of homosexual characters, the introduction early on in television of married couples being in the same bed. And a lot of people said, well, that's not bad because the show is pro- you know, is promoting them as a married couple. But these were still two people who were not married to each other engaging in activities on the screen. So how much of that influences people and so you can actually create a social engineering by means of art?
0: I want to follow up on what you just said by introducing some ideas and concepts that probably will be somewhat controversial, maybe a little hard to grasp initially. But I want to lay the foundation before I, I launch into it, because I think that what you have hit on something that is extremely important and that perhaps perhaps some of our listeners are aware of these things, that we have probably a, a very erudite listening audience. And the uh, chance that somebody might hear this that is not familiar with The nefariousness that goes on in our culture and that has been a part of the struggle between the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent throughout human history. I'd like for folks to think about this. Reflect on the time when you were a child, and let's just for the sake of argument say that you grew up in a home with a a mother and a father, and your perception about your parents and who they were to you when you were, say, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old was one thing. You know, you, you had a perception of them, what they meant to you, how they functioned in your world, that by the time you got to be maybe 18, 19, or 20, it was very, very different. Because as a 7 or 8 or 9 or 10-year-old, you aren't necessarily aware of the fact, say, that your father has a job in which he is answerable to people, some of whom may be very nice to him and some of whom may be not not so nice to him. You know, you just see your dad as a guy and your mother as as your mom – and uh, it never would occur to you that either one of them had been to a place where maybe somebody didn't treat them well that day, or they had a huge disappointment, or there was something going on in their lives that just wasn't really brought home to you until you got older and more mature, and then you could look back, especially as you reach, uh, Andrea, sort of the age bracket that we're in, we're, we'll just to say we're in the baby boom generation. You can look back and see that your parents' world and your world were very different, and that your perception and your understanding of that reality broadened as you became more acutely aware over time of outside influences that were affecting your home, even though that as a five- or six-year-old, you didn't quite know anything about it. I would like for our listeners to consider that what we see in film, TV commercials, TV programs, are a similar thing. You might have a five- or six-year-old level of understanding about when you go to see something like Star Wars, for example, or you watch a popular TV series like Breaking Bad or, or some of these other things, and it may never occur to you that someone has an agenda, some reason for putting something in that movie or something in that TV series that doesn't just simply fit in because of the dramatic action that that scene calls for. That there's something much more, in some cases, sinister, but nevertheless, something much more important meant to get a reaction from you. Maybe not immediately, but there's a reason why things are done this particular way. Now, you mentioned the issue concerning interracial couples, and that certainly is something that, for those of us of a particular generation, uh, even if you don't fall into the baby boom category, you can go on YouTube and see TV commercials from 20, 30 years ago or more. And you can see how those have changed just in reflecting issues relating to race and, and those kinds of things. But I want to agree with you. The, the issue is not so much, you know, interracial couples, interracial marriages. It's just that this is something that we see. And I guess it depends on where you live. Maybe as you walk downtown or in the mall, these are common sites. But as with the case with the homosexual agenda, In its day, going back all the way to the 70s, where these characters and these issues began to crop up in films as sort of a positive thing, I dare say that back then, 70s and 80s, most people did not know anyone who was what you might call openly homosexual. But yet in the TV programs, that very thing was being promoted.
1: And if you look back to programming in late 1990s and the early 2000s, a lot of the dramas were beginning to depict transgender people. They were depicting them as anomalies, but you were getting used to seeing them. And so sometimes you just have to be familiar that now, you know, we talked about it before, it's not news when a dog bites a man, but it's news when a man bites a dog. Right. Nowadays, when you hear about infidelity and you hear about violence, well, for goodness sakes, Infidelity and violence without either of those, you wouldn't have most of your programming. And so they're things we get used to. And I think that's part of the issue in terms of identifying what causes what. Does life imitate art or does art imitate life? Well, the real question is do the lives of people reflect honoring God and obeying his commandments or do the lives of people reflect disobeying God and having a relativistic view. Thus, those who are producing art and who want to shape people's thinking will either have stories and conflicts that are in line with biblical thinking or contrary to it. It's sort of what you brought up Star Wars. A lot of people don't like when I tell them how unbiblical Star Wars is, and yet you have all these Christians, really true believers, because I know them, who love Star Wars, and they love all these, you know, superhero things, but if you analyze the world and life view of Star Wars, it's not reflective of biblical Christianity. It's a very different world and life view, and so people say, but we're just being entertained. Sure, you're being entertained, but you're also being shaped, because they wouldn't spend the money. George Lucas is a pantheist. He is not someone who believes in a creator God. So how in the world he resolves the problems of good and evil, he's making it up, folks. He's not really following a biblical pattern. And so people can have this erroneous idea that you can be a wicked, wicked person all your life, like good old Darth, and do one good thing, and now all is good. Does he have to pay for the sins of the murders of all the people he's done? Is there any sort of atonement through Jesus Christ? No, we like him at the end. Doesn't that cheapen the message of Scripture?
0: Well, it certainly does. On the other hand, we could hardly expect the major movie producers and writers to give us anything remotely biblical because that is not their worldview. If any of our listeners would be interested in this, uh, there is currently a series that's been running, I believe it's on the AMC cable channel, which I believe stands or stood for American Movie Classics, and it is a fascinating series of interviews. It's sort of a documentary, but it's more of an interview program between James Cameron and a host of well-known science fiction producers like Steven Spielberg, Ridley Scott, and Cameron himself of course is a, is a sci-fi uh, movie uh, producer and director and uh, i've only watched one in the series but it was with Steven Spielberg and you get a very very clear view that most of these guys all of them so far as i know are not only not biblical christians they have an antagonistic stance toward it and they have as part of their agenda to promote an alternative that they think will lead the world and humanity into this bright dawn of a new age that, you know, we all need to be thinking like they think. And there's a reason why the the people who produce these films, most of them are not members of a conservative traditional Protestant or Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox church. They all embrace some form of new age philosophy or liberal Christianity, if it's even that. Or as we've talked about in a previous broadcast, Scientology is very popular among uh, some of the Hollywood elite. Uh, but we also um, have seen the the dark side and uh, some of this in the more recent revelations of how some of these people who would pretend to be our uh, thought leaders and uh, moral standard bearers are themselves uh, wickedly evil, even by rebellious satanic standards. I, I want to introduce a, a concept. I mentioned this earlier. There are three particular concepts I, I want us to think about in terms of this discussion. And the first of these three, I'm not going to do them all at the same time. I'll bring in the other two. But the first is something that has been labeled predictive programming. You used that term programming a moment ago. People who have thought deeply about this subject that we're discussing, they have come up with this term. And uh, let me just sort of give you the, the definition. It's a method of mass mind control. It proposes that people are conditioned through works of fiction or TVs or movies to accept a planned future scenario. Uh, One research in particular said that the power of suggestion using the media of fiction is to create a desired outcome. Now, you've already referred to that very thing. You didn't use this terminology, but that's what it's been called. Details of uh, pre-planned societal changes, for example, are intentionally revealed to the masses through various forms of media. Propagandists will use that type of foreshadowing as a means of preemptively minimizing resistance to it. So if you get used to watching characters who manifest a a non-biblical lifestyle and you see it over and over again, you become used to it. I I remember this is a little bit off that target, but it it hits the point home, I think, perfectly. I remember in the early 1960s, I would have to go back and see the precise year. It might have been 63 or 64, but the Beatles, their black-and-white film called Hard Day's Night was released, and uh, I saw that in my hometown of Columbia, South Carolina, with a couple of friends of mine. I must have been, I don't know, nine or ten years old at the time. And, Andrea, you know what? I mean, all of us, for three days in a row, we couldn't stop talking in British accents. <laughs> now, that's something I would have never in my life thought about doing to that point as a nine- or ten-year-old, but after seeing that movie and being exposed to it in the, in the format of the Beatles and their music and the way the movie was made, it, we just wanted to copy it. We wanted to emulate it, you know, and, and uh, that, that's the way in a very seemingly innocent way in this case that people's behavior and thinking are affected.
1: So let me make a comment here that I think is pertinent to what you said. Um, at the end, I'm going to recommend two resources, um, previous journals of Christian Reconstruction that you can read online on the Calcedon website. But here's a quote for one of those symposiums. It says, There is thus a necessary relationship between the increasingly narcotic nature of art in the modern world and the actual use of narcotics. There is moreover a pioneering in the use of narcotics by artists, especially avant-garde artists who led the way in the flight from reality. Not surprisingly, youth in the 1960s and 1970s, having been reared on fiction, the opium of television, having been in rebellion against reality. Its attitude has not been the reaction of health to an evil world, desire to regenerate and to reform but rather a horror of reality and a desire to smash it many of the supposedly revolutionary youth of the 1960s have wandered into other forms of escapism since then narcotics eastern religions and pseudo-christianity i think that about sums it up
0: don't you think (laughs) yeah but you know what's what's interesting is that uh, some of the some of our same uh, former hippie friends are now in the corridors of power, and I maybe this is a little off topic, but I'm constantly stunned and amazed that the very people who were marching and uh, you know lobbying and screaming and howling for free speech and more freedom event for the individual are those same people who are now in positions of power who are doing everything they can to make sure that our society is much, much less free and that our speech is much more managed and corralled than it ever would have been, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Now, um, people are
1: going to think that you set me up to read my second quote, but since we don't share what we're going to talk about with each other other than the to topic, if you will indulge me again to the other quote that I isolated, which I think supports what you just said.
0: It's all providential, Andrea. Go there for it. Go.
1: And both these quotes, the one I read before in this one, are both Dr. Rush speaking. He says, biblical religion can and does provide meaning and direction to life. It does declare salvation, and it is a book and a faith which provides a plan of action to victory. Divorced from that faith, art must finally proclaim an ultimate meaninglessness. Divorced from religion, art becomes the handmaiden of the state, and then its prostitute. Having become the dope peddler to the masses, the artist narcotizes himself first in order to find life tolerable. The pretentious poses of the modern artist are a sorry facade, masking a lost calling. Art has become opium, because politics is itself no more than the mass propagation of narcotics for the masses, who are deluded into believing that the clankings of their political chains are the first notes of the Liberty Bell. (laughs) Modern man wants narcotics because he does not want the truth, Jesus Christ. The state of the arts is a reflection of the failure of modern man. So it's always going to be a means to gaining power, but power in an unbiblical sense is domination. Power in a biblical sense is dominion.
0: Yes, thank you. That is a, an excellent quote, as we have come to expect and appreciate from the writings of Dr. Rush Dooney. I love that clanking of their chains, mistaking it for the ringing of the Liberty Bell. That is exactly, unfortunately, the way a lot of people think nowadays. I, I want to follow up on what I said about predictive programming and how, you know, the, the, the agenda is the repeatedly exposing the public to the same specific themes to wear them down into a state of passive passive acceptance. And, you know, by the time the changes that are meant to be brought about start to manifest themselves in the society and the family and the life of the individual, there aren't even going to be people who would think to question the development of it, uh, leave alone, uh, rebel against it. So this, I, I want to suggest to our listeners, is another aspect of this Do you have the five or six-year-old mentality when you watch the news, when you watch your TV programs, and when you go to the motion pictures, or do you have a more mature adult understanding that none of this is done in a vacuum? It is all being done with some kind of an agenda. Now, it may be good, positive, or indifferent, but don't ever think that that film, that TV show, that TV commercial doesn't have some agenda to affect your behavior.
1: And when you go back and you watch things that you watched as a child with what you said, adult eyes, you realize when Jesus had said you must receive the kingdom as a child, what he's saying is children don't usually question, especially young children, what they're told. If mommy and daddy tell them there's a Santa Claus, they believe in Santa Claus. If mom and daddy tell them about Jesus Christ, they believe in Jesus Christ. It's not that we have to say, well, they're always the most discerning. That's why it's so important when they're young to be able to shape them in a way that the scripture talks about is the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as opposed to the nurture and admonition of something or someone else. When I look back on some of the movies I loved as a child, or even some of the music that I sang, I'm horrified because kids were singing back then, if you think about your 60s and your 70s, you're basically promoting immorality because it's all about, you know, I loved you, I gave myself to you, and now you dumped me. I mean, think of most of country Western music. It's presupposing fornication. It's presupposing adultery. Is it any wonder that it's no big surprise today that people aren't faithful and we ended up with no fault divorce because we got so used to divorce. So, why should we blame anybody? It just didn't work out anymore.
0: And with that, you have set me up <laughs> for my introducing my second of the three concepts that I want to mention here. And uh, that is something called twilight language. Twilight language. That phrase actually has a long history in pagan religion. And philosophy and the occult. Um, uh, it once was a, a near universal subliminal communication system used in ancient Egypt and Babylon, uh, in India, uh, also even among the Aztecs. And what it is, it, it consists of a combination of numbers, archetypal words, and symbols, which in our time are sometimes embedded in modern advertising or, or in popular songs, films. And it includes visual communication, verbal communication, and nonverbal communication. But the point is that it is meant to be understood on a surface level by the non-initiated, but for those in the know, there is a hidden meaning behind the words of the song or the image on the screen. This has come to be called, as I said, or labeled the way it's done for the purposes of creating change in the life of a person as twilight language so for example uh, i'm not going to name any uh, it would take me a minute to even think them up but popular songs that we sang from our generation from the 60s and 70s our parents listening to it it might not have made, meant anything to them but some of the songs had veiled references to smoking marijuana uh-huh. or not so veiled references but in some cases uh, somewhat veiled references to uh, sexual activity so um, that's a type of a very Minor type, but it's there of, of twilight language that is meant to communicate something to the people in the know, but to the people who don't, they just sort of brush it off and aren't necessarily uh, going to pay that much attention to it.
1: Well, I think that when you take a look at lyrics, m- my husband works at a car dealership, and one of the aspects he's not thrilled about is that they always have music playing and loud music, but he doesn't hear that well, so he doesn't necessarily know the lyrics. And one time, my son and my daughter and I were in there, and he was going, You know, this song plays all the time. And we looked at each other and we said, Do you know what the words are? He says, No, I could never, I can't hear them. And we shared what the words were. And he was horrified. He said, People are coming in and buying cars, and this is what they're hearing? They sold a lot of cars. It's not like the music stopped them. So when you have a barrage of something, it gets in there. That's why you can't sometimes get a tune out of your head or you can't get lyrics in your head because. It has that kind of effect. So stop having good, solid, doctrinally accurate hymns of the faith that play in people's heads. No, we don't do that anymore. We have, in most churches, and I think this would fall under some of that pseudo Christianity that Rush Dooney mentioned, we have songs that very much emulate modern culture, which does anything other than promote the majesty of God.
0: It makes me think of a quote from. I believe it was a seminary, a professor in a reform seminary who, uh, especially the sort of soft rock 70s music that wound its way into many contemporary church worship services. He uh, he referred to it as God is my girlfriend music. You know, and, and so this is in, a, in terms of visual things, in terms of music. We're certainly not saying that those things are bad. I mean, the Lord gave us the capacity to be creative. Uh, But the question is, you know, are we seeking to serve the creator with our artistic inclinations, be they written, uh, musical, or, you know, in terms of painting and film, or are we seeking to serve uh, another agenda?
1: Like so many things, Charles, art is inescapable. People are going to express themselves in song, in visual media, in writing, when you don't start with a biblical world and life view that is faithful to Christianity, you're going to end up with initially a hybrid, but then eventually something that doesn't look at all like the original. That's why every area of life and thought needs to be viewed from the paradigm of God's law, because if you create art that is contrary to what God says, then what you're doing is you're perpetuating a lie and a fraud. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have stories that show conflict and sin, because as in the symposiums on the arts, it was pointed out that if you don't have conflict, you don't have a story. Nobody goes and spends two and a half hours watching everybody have a nice time at dinner, (laughs) because that's not interesting. Well, life does have conflict because we live in a fallen world. It's how that conflict is presented and how it is resolved. And if you're not starting with God's law, you're going to resolve it in a different way. And a great example is a lot of the doctor and police shows and the espionage, these guys live reprobate lives, cheat on their wives or they never have wives or whatever it is, but they save the country or they're saving people from disease or they solve the case. In other words, we've compartmentalized them into they can do good things while some of the doctor shows, every doctor and every nurse has at least at one point in the 20-year run of the show had sex with each other. And you know what? After they break up, they're still friends. It's amazing. It all just works out. Nobody's jealous. Nobody is vengeful. Well, that's the fantasy world that's promoted with current art. What would it look like if instead of catering to the masses, Christians supplied each other with good art? And not worry about if it got good box office reviews. Make it and distribute it amongst people who have a desire to reflect the truth of God's word.
0: Yes, and this, this goes back to uh, the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Adam and Eve. And you know, he attempted to portray and create a, a different interpretation, a different picture, if you will, of what God had told them and the reality around them. You know, whether we're talking about some of the more nefarious and behind the scene things like predictive programming or Twilight Language, just the very project of putting something on a screen or giving you a, a video account of something involves distortion you're not seeing everything within, say, uh, a mile radius or less of that particular scene you're being shown on television, whether it be a news report or a, a TV program. I mentioned this interview series being done on one of the channels where the the science fiction director is interviewing other science fiction directors, and in the one with Steven Spielberg, they showed a clip from Spielberg's uh, movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It was interesting that uh, Cameron even used the phrase, you know, you are almost promoting a religious view in this movie, of course not a Christian one, of which Spielberg agreed, but they showed a clip in the movie. Uh, There's a scene in the movie where these uh, spaceships come to the home of a woman and her son, um, who play very prominently in the film, and there's a scene in the movie where the little boy runs out on the front porch of the house and he sees these. Now, you don't see them in the audience on the film. You're meant to see the fact that the little boy sees these little alien creatures. And the reaction that they wanted to get out of the boy for the film was one of bright-eyed, happy fascination with these little aliens. This comes across very clearly in the movie. I mean, the boy runs out and he's you know, has this, wow, bright-eyed, you know, it's kind of like a kid might have for people who observe Christmas. A kid comes into the room, and there's a presence all under the Christmas tree. and Wow, Santa has been here, that kind of thing. But Spielberg said that in order to elicit that facial expression from the child, the actor, he said what they did, they had a couple of the extras on the movie set dress up as Bugs Bunny and, you know, a, a couple of stock, happy cartoon characters. And they had them kind of stand behind the cameras and just come walking up. And that's what elicited, he said, the reaction of that little boy. Now, you see, that's how things get distorted and how there's this fundamental dishonesty and things going on behind the scenes that, again, if you're taking that five-year-old understanding of things, you're you're unaware of how you're being affected. That, That little boy wasn't reacting that way because he saw little aliens. He was reacting that way because the director of the movie had dressed people up as cartoon characters.
1: And instead of being afraid of them, which would more than likely be the response, Steven Spielberg has the child welcoming them because you see children are more accepting. He's constructed the world, so he's the god of that story. So Steven Spielberg played God.
0: Well, I want to suggest that in in terms of that particular film that I referred to, and and you, you made a very good point in talking about the fact that the, the intended effect of that reaction of the little boy was uh, engineered to be a positive one, whereas people who, uh, whatever we may think of their their reports, who claimed to have had experiences like that, most of them are terrified. Yes. But I think, uh, you know, Spielberg has, uh, and not just him, but many, many hundreds of people in Hollywood and people in universities and people who are the managers of our secular worldviews in this society, they have a vested interest in having us think something about, you know, our deliverance lies in the stars or something like that. And this then leads to the third and final thing that I want to mention about this behind the scenes sort of stuff. And it is called the revelation of the method, the revelation of the method. And it's the recognition that an effect can be garnered from an event if that event is made aware to the person or to the people who you are planning on affecting before it happens, usually at a subconscious level. So the subconscious can actually pick up on an otherwise imperceptible element to the conscious mind that that hint at something coming in the future, and that way it sows uh, an acceptance through the subconscious exposure, say, to numbers and symbols as presented in that media, and I will give you a classic example of that that many people have pointed to, and that is what happened on 9-11. It is very, it it is undeniable, people, our listeners, if you want to get on Google or YouTube, you can find many examples of this to where there were programs and images that were all over the place leading up to that fatal day of 9-11, 2001, where that number figured in. And one of the most famous is, if uh, the listeners have ever seen the movie The Matrix with Keanu Reeves, there's a scene early on in the movie, which that movie, by the way, was released in 1999. There's a scene early on in the movie where he is arrested by the so-called agents, and he's brought into an interrogation room, and they sit him down, and one of the agents has this big fat file on him, and he opens it up, and there are a bunch of papers in there about this character's you know, supposed violations of various laws. And paper to the top of the file is his driver's license. Now, you don't see this extremely clearly in the movie. But you can go online and you can find close-ups of that driver's license from the film. And guess what the expiration date is? 9-11-2001. Wow. And that's only one of many different examples in that particular case. But that's certainly not the only one. So I think that these three concepts, insofar as we're talking about how uh, art uh, can be used to um, not only cause life to imitate it, but also for legislating agendas. And this also goes back to the oldest of times. In ancient times, the Greeks, of course, were famous for drama and plays. And even then, they understood the power uh, of these types of images and dramatic presentations. But, you know, we can fast forward. We talked about, uh, uh, briefly, we mentioned the, the hippie era. I well recall that when some of the more politically motivated counterculture youth uh, were seeking to impact and influence society toward a more leftist, socialist, Marxist agenda, one of the things that was employed was something called street theater. I don't know if you ever had any exposure to that. but
1: Yes, I, I, I did.
0: I mean, the whole purpose of that is to you know, act out little skits that were prearranged to shock people, uh, to have an impact on their consciousness, uh, to shock them into a reality, whether it be, say, forgive the unpleasant image, but if you're trying to legislate a homosexual agenda, two men kissing each other, say, for example. Other, other things that were completely against the conventions of a more biblically-based society.
1: And I think art, intentional art, which I think certainly most of the programming that we see because big money goes behind it, is meant to push a culture along. Knowing at first, there's going to be some resistance, but even then, people will be talking about it. And then after a while, there'll be acceptance. The point is, as you said, people aren't always aware of it. The seeking to be entertained... They think they're being entertained if instead they're being programmed or engineering was taking place.
0: And we can look back and see when our culture was at least nominally more biblical, the very different character of the programming, the movies, even the advertising, although the advertising, as we mentioned previously, has been a vehicle for influencing people along a lot of different lines but that's why you can see a motion picture from the late 30s or into the early 40s and mid-40s, whether it be a husband and wife sleeping in separate beds to there absolutely being no profanity of any type in the movie. Maybe people of a certain strata pepper their language with filthy words all the time, but even people like that knew that there were certain places they'd better not use that kind of language or they'd be thrown out on their ear. Nowadays, that thing is that sort of thing is common. But I believe one reason it is much more common is because it has proliferated in the media, and just these various terms that I've just used, especially predictive programming and revelation of the method, have been used just in terms of language to influence how people interact and speak with each other. And you know, once a certain generation dies off, that doesn't remember and have the collective memory of a more biblically-based time, then it's not going to mean much to the pagans and the barbarians who are left over uh, to continue to use the F word in every other word that they speak, and they have the IQ of, um, uh, of, say, a gerbil. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is is a nightmarish scenario that we're picturing. But, you know, as Dr. Rush Dooney pointed out, especially in the latter part of his life, we are living in the dying stages of humanism. And it affords us a tremendous opportunity to show people a better way and to continue to work at creating and maintaining a Christian civilization, even while the one around us crumbles.
1: So art will either imitate sin or art will either imitate righteousness. And those who indulge in it, in other words, anybody who says, yeah, the movie's harmless, the word, you know, I don't listen for the words and I just listen for the tune. I like the beat. They need to realize that if they are obviously pursuing something that promotes a world-in-life view other than a biblical world-in-life view, then they're not being loyal to their creator or to their profession of faith. And I think we would see a great groundswell of support if people were fed the entertainment that reflected a biblical world-in-life view. Sadly, even though there are what they call family-friendly films, very few of them ever acknowledge Jesus Christ. Very few of them ever talk about that Jesus is the only way to the Father, and you're never going to have your guilt removed apart from Jesus bearing it for you. These are the kinds of things that need to be in the marketplace, but not so much that the heathen and the pagan and the wicked will buy them, because they won't they'll suppress them. If we're going to put our efforts in something that God will bless, then let's have a Gideon's army of artists who say, God has put stories on our heart and we'll tell them. And then Christians should subsidize the efforts to help get them in the marketplace rather than giving their $13 a ticket or $15 a ticket for things that actually promote just the opposite of what they say they believe.
0: I'm aware, as you say that, of uh, how much, in fact, it does cost to go to films nowadays, and I can't think of any in the past decade, and I don't go to movies very often. One reason is because of the cost, but I, um, I've actually published a few blog articles reviewing a few movies. I tell people I go to the movies nowadays for the popcorn, more for, for the movie. <laughs> Well, we've uh, ranged quite far with this, and I hope that our listeners have appreciated this uh, discussion about the question of whether it's true that art influences life or life imitates art. I think that we've reasonably effectively answered that question. You mentioned some resources earlier. Do you want to mention those again?
1: Yes. If you go to the Calcedon um, website, calcedon.edu, and you go to the resources section, there's a bar on the top that has a search function, and put in Symposium on the Media and Arts, and then secondly, Symposium on the Reformation of the Media and Arts. These were publications that were uh, put together three years apart from each other, and it's really an in-depth look at various aspects of the art world and the way in which it can be reconstructed to the glory of God. Both of them have extensive articles and they're good reads and you can order them. But if you choose just to read certain sections, that's also available because Calcedon makes all its materials um, free to be listened to or read.
0: Yes. And for anyone who may want to pursue more in depth, the, um, the three things that I mentioned as it relates to this issue of film And television. I would like to recommend a book called *Esoteric Hollywood: Sex, Cults, and Symbolism in Film* by J. Dyer. D. Y. E. R. J. Dyer is an Eastern Orthodox Christian, a very devout Christian in that tradition, and he um, at one time was and still is, I think, uh, an avid reader of R. J. Rushdoony. As a matter of fact, in this book, uh, Doctor Rushdoony is quoted and referenced in several places. But this is a book that was published just about a year ago, and it does a very good job of analyzing some of the most popular films of the past 30 or 40 years and pointing out some of the very, very things that we mentioned uh, in this discussion today.
1: Before we close, let me say two things. One, if there's a topic you'd like us to explore, please email us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And I would like to encourage listeners who may not be regular supporters of the Calcedon Foundation to consider becoming either an underwriter, and that would be someone who gives regular monthly support, or make regular donations or a one-time donation. Many people erroneously think that Calcedon is subsidized by some foundation or grants or whatever. Calcedon survives and continues based on the response of those who benefit from the ministry. And both Charles and I, before we were podcasters, have been longtime supporters of Calcedon because not only are we grateful for the impact it had on our lives, but the fact that this material is available to people makes it so we can say, hey, you want to know about a particular thing? Go to this website, start listening, start reading. And I've noticed a lot of people, their comments are, wow, there's a lot to digest here. Well. There is, and that's why the support of those who benefit from it is so important.
0: And I will totally agree with that and point out that one reason that we find ourselves in the situation we are in in our culture as it relates to the arts and to media is because many Christians have been totally unaware of the fact that the Bible speaks to this area of life. And once they encounter something like the works of Dr. Rastuni and the Chalcedon Foundation, they realize there's this whole world, this whole universe a biblical commentary and discussion on these very topics that perhaps they've been going to churches and, you know, involved in Christian activities for decades, and they never heard anything like this. So Chalcedon deserves your support. It can provide you with the resources that you need to grow up and be an adult in this world. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www. KingdomDrivenFamily.com.